0: Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Hey there, Mike Stelsner.
1: Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelsner.
0: Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who wanna know what works with social media. Today, I've got an awesome guest, but I'll tell you more about him in a little bit. I first wanna share something with you that I have been doing. So I'm gonna hit play on a little video, and I want you to visualize yourself watching this video. Ready? Here we go. Do you aspire to be known for something? Are you concerned there's no room for you and for your message? Let's talk. Shout out to Brad Poirier for asking me this question on Instagram. Let's take the most crowded industry in the entire world. Can you guess what it is? It's the food industry. Every single human that I'm aware of on the planet needs to eat. (laughs) That you're aware of. (laughs) (laughs) And the reality is... There's a lot that can be said about food. And some people might say, well, there's no way that I could ever create any food-related content that hasn't already been done. Well, let's explore whether that's true or not. First, let's take a look at Love and Lemons. It's literally a blog about using lemons with food. And that's all they talk about is lemons, lemons, lemons. How about this YouTube channel, Cooking with Dog? Hi, I'm Francis, the host of this show, Cooking with Dog. Literally, it's about a woman who cooks with her dog. Yeah, there's a whole YouTube channel and she's crushing it. Or how about a Taste of the Past, which is a podcast dedicated to flavors and foods from the past. A lemon, a dog, the past, Those are all angles on food that somebody got creative with. There are absolutely endless options for you, no matter what industry you're in. Let me share a story with you. I started Social Media Examiner more than 10 years ago, and there were hundreds and hundreds of blogs talking about social media. How did I decide to differentiate? First, I designed a cartoon character. People said, a cartoon character? Who's gonna listen to a cartoon character? I said, that's not the point. The point is that I've created a cartoon character that no one will ever forget. And whenever they come to our site, they'll remember Scout. I also noticed that everybody was talking about their opinion. I don't like Facebook for this. The Twitter way all this. Everybody was complaining, 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 but you wanna know what no one was doing? Sharing how to tips. So I decided to differentiate my brand by just talking about the how-to. What's unique about you in your industry? What can you do to stand out? Here's a couple questions that I want you to ask other people. Here we go, number one. Imagine you had an internet movie database profile page on you and there's that one section that says you're most known for blank what's the name of that movie metaphorically for me michael stelzner most known for social media marketing analyst what are you most known for ask your friends and customers to answer that question the second question to ask your friends and customers is what makes me different why the last question What would you most like me to talk about? And then tell me more. The next step is to decide what type of delivery platform you're gonna use. Are you a performer? Are you a writer? Are you a talker? You know your skills best. Start with the path that's easiest for you. And sometimes if you're not sure, maybe just pick up Instagram and start using Instagram stories. Why? Because when you record that little 15 second video, it's gonna be gone after 24 hours and you won't have to worry about what people think about it. That might be your good on-ramp to testing your message to see whether or not it resonates with people before you dive fully into video, podcasting, or the written word. Remember that you are unique and you have everything you need already to be successful because there's absolutely no one else in the world like you. There's no one else who's walked the path that you've walked, had the experiences that you have, and has thought the things that you've thought. And if you really want to stand out, don't try to be someone else. Instead, be you. Despite there being billions of people on this planet, there's no one anywhere like you. So get out there and start sharing your message with the world. Well, I hope you found a lot of value in that little video clip that I played for you. Uh, There's plenty more over at youtube.com slash social media examiner. All right. Well, I'm going to be playing some of these videos over the next couple of weeks, and I'm going to be sharing more about this special project that I'm working on. But for now, I'm going to keep it a mystery. All right. Now, I'm ready to introduce Duncan Wardle, and we're going to talk about how to rethink the way... You do your business so that you can grow your business. I think you're going to find a lot of value. Let's transition over right now. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner, the best of the best So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today.
1: Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide.
0: Today, I'm excited to be joined by Duncan Wardle. If you don't know who Duncan is, he's the former head of innovation and creativity for Disney. He's also a keynote speaker who delivers workshops on design, thinking, and innovation. Duncan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to explore some of the reasons why we need to rethink the way we do our marketing. But before we go there, I'd love to hear your story, Duncan. Start wherever you want. How'd you get into marketing?
1: Um, got lucky. I <laughs> I started as a barman at the Rose and Crown Pub in Epcot. That's my first job 1986. I then transferred back to the London office. There were only 16 people in the London office of Disney in those days. Now there's 3,500. My wow. very first job was getting six cappuccinos a day and uh, collating 60 press kits a day. And my very first assignment was going to be the uh, raw premiere of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the presence of the Princess of Wales, Diana. And my job was simply to stand at the bottom of the stairs and make sure Roger didn't hurt himself on the way down. And you think, you know, how could you possibly screw that up? (laughs) Well, um, a contingency plan would tell you that the average width of a stair is the same length as your foot, unless you're an extremely tall rabbit with very long feet. And with about six steps to go, uh, Roger tripped over himself and went hurtling through the air directly towards the head of Princess Diana, oh. whereupon two ro- two royal protection officers took him out. They didn't hesitate. He was just taken out in midair. So there's a very famous photograph, you can still find it on Reuters, of two big heavies on top of Roger with me in the background at the age of 21 sort of going, oh, my God, I just got fired. And so I didn't go to work the next day, got a call from the boss He said, hey, where are you? I said, I'm at home. I, I thought I was fired. He says, no. This is exactly the sort of publicity we needed for Roger Rabbit. I was like, oh, my God, I can make a career out of this. And so I did. I built the first 20 years of my career in public relations. And I, because I'm a great believer, I loved the ideas that I had no idea if I could pull them off. Mm. Those are the ideas worth chatting. You know, if you're working for the world's number one entertainment company, you better have an idea that people. And I loved my, my first CEO was Michael Eisner. And I loved him because every time he walked in the door with a big idea, he would say, not big enough. We're the world's number one entertainment company. Come back when you got something to talk about. And so that was a real challenge. And so I got to do some crazy things. I taught NASA into taking my son's Buzz Lightyear into space on a space shuttle for the launch of Toy Story, Toy Story Mania. I've taught Michael Phelps into swimming down Main Street USA (laughs) because normally with the Super Bowls, as you probably saw yesterday with Mahomes, you know, you do the, hey, you've just become MVP. What are you going to do next? Well, we couldn't do that with a swimmer. So we said, you've just won Olympic gold. He goes, I'm going to swim Disneyland. And we built a physical swimming pool all the way down (laughs) Main Street USA. Stole a few turkeys from the White House (laughs) on Thanksgiving Day uh, with uh, about two different presidents. and Just came up with the audacious ideas that, again, you just – once the chairman said approved, you think, oh, God, I've got to get this done. Those and to me, public relations is, you know, and the other thing is the Disney publicist in me says, you pick up the phone, you make your pitch. They can say yes, they can say no, they can laugh, they can put the phone down. Who cares? And so I've always lived with that mentality and I've got away with murder as a result. So that's how I got into public relations. And, and I loved it because it was the ability to have a big idea, didn't really have any money to support it whereas the other disciplines had the money. But what I also loved about Disney was the fact that if you had a big idea, the funding would come.
0: So how long was the stint? 20 years at Disney, is that right?
1: No, 20 years until, no, it was 30 in total, until one day when I was minding my own business, I got a call from the chairman. He said, hey, you're the guy with all the big ideas who gets them done. You're going to be in charge of innovation. To which my response, immediate response was, well, what the hell is that? And he said, well, I don't know. We just need more of it. Okay, great, thanks. So so the first thing we did was we surveyed 5,000 people at Marvel, Lucasfilms, Pixar, Disney Imagineering. And we asked them what were the barriers to being more innovative and creative at work. Number one, time to think, or lack thereof. Number two, risk aversion. I've got quarterly results to me. Number three, consumer insight underused. Number four, ideas get stuck, diluted, or killed as they move through the process. Number five, we've all got a different definition of innovation, so we're heading in different directions. But there's a couple there. If you ask, and I ask lots of audiences, are you a product-centric brand or a consumer-centric brand? People will say, they'll put their hand up, I'm consumer-centric. And then if you ask them the follow-up question, have you ever spent the day in a living room of one of your consumers? Very few people can put their hand up. Mm-hmm. And you know, do you care more about quarterly results or your consumer? And from 1920 to 2020, uh, quarterly results and Wall Street dominated the way we do business. But the next decade, we're investing in artificial intelligence and we should. We're investing in blockchain and we should. We're investing in data and we should. But who's watching Generation Z, a generation who care more about purpose than profit, who will not only not buy your products and services if they don't believe in what you stand for, they don't want to work for you. Well, there's a challenge. And so on risk aversion and our quarterly results, I was asked to, and purpose, I'm very passionate about purpose. Some people think it's a philanthropic cause. It's not. It's what do you stand for? Why do you go to work for that company? What do they stand for? I was asked to give a talk to the world's largest tool manufacturer about purpose. I know nothing about the tool industry, so I thought, where could I learn more? about what's important to their consumers, So I went down to Home Depot and Lowe's and hung out in the aisle like some creepy guy for a couple of days, freaking out their consumers. And I went back to talk to them and I said, hey, this generation hasn't heard of your brand. At that decision-making purchase moment, the decision, I'm going to pick up this tool and buy it. They're not talking about your brand. They're not talking about the individual products and they're not talking about the price point. They're talking about what's important to them, not you. We're gonna build our, remodel our dream kitchen, build our dream house. I said, your purpose, if you choose to create one, is you could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. And you can see the finance guys rolling their eyes and saying, well, how's that gonna deliver quarterly results? It might not, but it might save your industry, but I think it's too late. We're building houses in Houston, Texas today on a 3D printer. The mayor of Shanghai and the mayor of Mitsko City have said they're gonna try and build a city on a 3D printer. Amazon spent billions of dollars last year on shipping. It is not in their best interest to continue to do so. I put it to you that by the year 2035, a third of what you buy on Amazon today, you will print at home on your 3D printer. If we can print anything we want on demand, what will we be using a hammer, a chisel and a saw for by the year 2035? No, they'll be in a museum. But if they'd accepted the offer, we could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. Could they be in sports? Yes. Banking? Yes. Finance? Yes. Insurance? Hospitality? And they could be in any line of business they want. But no, we do tools and we do them really well. Well, guess what? Tools are going away. And this is, you know, we, we talked slightly earlier on about Matis has just announced the closure of 125 stores. The biggest threat is to the legacy brands because they've been so successful for 100 years doing it this way. This is the way we do it here and so you hear the answer we tried that last year and so many people work for those brands and it's about helping people think differently and the legacy brands are their own biggest enemy because they've been so successful in model a they're having a really hard time trying to get to model b
0: excellent so i want to ask this question and i want you to try to answer not just for big brands but even little brands because obviously mm. they're the lifeblood of a lot, a lot sure. of businesses all around the world yep what is wrong with marketing and business today
1: marketing Uh, Marketing implies the word at, um, and you see it in your Instagram feed, the third image every single time somebody has produced content to disrupt the consumer. I do not want to be disrupted. Now, I I may have had a neutral position on your brand before. Now, I don't like your brand at all, Mm. because you have disrupted me. I don't choose to be disrupted. I'm on my social feed. But marketing implies at. That is a one-way relationship and you and i both know one-way relationships don't work and that's why your event is so successful because it's built on creating experiences for and with our consumers it's not marketing at. and here's there's a big transition that's coming we're moving from the marketing economy to the experience economy what do i mean by that i mean macy's have just announced the closure of 125 stores walt wasn't an idiot when Walt opened Disneyland on July 17, 1955, he opened the most successful, continues to be the most successful, retail shopping mall on the planet per square foot. Do you think of Disneyland as a shopping mall? No, you do not. You think of it as an experience. Airbnb, an experience. The Museum of Ice Cream, an experience. Starbucks, do we go for the coffee? No, we do not go for the coffee. We go for the experience. And Generation Z, will they own houses? No. Will they own cars? No, they want experiences. And so it's about creating, it about, Rejuvenating our brands. And there's three different ways I think people can go about it. The first is basically to challenge the rules of your industry. It was a tool created by Walt. It's very easy to use. Walt created Fantasia and he wanted it to mist inside the theater during the scene with rain. He wanted heat pumped in during the, uh, the scene of Night on a Bear Mountain. And the theater owner said, no, Walt, too expensive. So Walt listed all the rules of his industry as they stood today. He was frustrated that he couldn't control the experience in which his consumers uh, experienced his brand. So he said, well, what if I I control the movie theater? Okay, well, that's not very innovative. He said, well, what if I take my movies out of the theater? Uh, You're not supposed to know how to do it. If you know how to do it, that's iteration, not innovation. He said, well, if I take my movies out of the theater, they can't be two-dimensional. Well, what if I made them three-dimensional? If I made them three-dimensional i'd have to have people play the characters Well, if i had people play the characters cinderella couldn't live next to jacksborough and Davy crockett because people wouldn't be immersed in her story i'd have to put her in a different let la- oh wait a minute i'll call it disneyland one of the great re-engineering of a consumer experience another way of doing it is to reinvent the consumer experience by not solely relying on data. As marketeers, we tend to rely and will rely more heavily on data. If you're only looking in your big data, you're only looking where your competition is looking. And data sometimes can only go so far. But by being curious, for example, and acting like a child and asking why, we tend to stop. Your data tends to only stop at the first. Why, if you say why do you go to a Disney park? People will tell you for the I go for the rides. Well, that's a capital investment strategy. But if you pause for a second and say, what, why do you go for the rides? Well, I like Small World. Why on earth do you like Small World? I remember the music. Why is that important to you? It reminds me of my mum. Why is that significant? I take my daughter now. On the fifth why, you learn the real reason that she's going to Disney. It's not for the new attractions. It's for her memory and nostalgia. That's a communication campaign, not a capital investment strategy. But our big data, the, the task we were given was to get more people to come to the theme park and spend more money. So our data told us who could afford the Disney brand. Our data told us who'd been before, who'd been shopping online, who had been, who'd uh, visited the Disney store, who was a 10 out of 10 on a survey for the last five years of I'm coming this year. Well, they didn't come. So clearly our data was missing something. So we decided to reinvent our relationship with the consumer. A lot of us do focus groups. Um, I'm not a great advocate of focus groups. You put 12 strangers in a room, you sit behind a two-way mirror, and everybody knows you're there. Well, does anybody live in a house with a two-way mirror? No. (laughs) It's not the most relaxed environment. We get 12 individuals. Why? Because it's value for money. No. Put them in their living room. They are 10 times more relaxed than they are in a focus group room. And here's the other. It's not just what they tell you, it's what you see, and I'll articulate that better in a minute. But the other thing is this chances are they'll be in couples. You get real honesty out of couples that you don't get out of individuals. In a focus group, if you say to dad, why do you go to Disney? I go for the thrill rides. I'm a manly man. If his wife is sitting next to him on the sofa, she's going to go, no, no, honey, you did small world 17 times back to back last year. And you really loved it. You get real (laughs) insights out of couples that you don't get out of individuals, but it's more important to get in their house. And let me tell you why. So our typical hypothesis was, we build it, they will come. Why? Because that's the way we've always done it, right? Very product-centric, we know best approach. Our data tells us. They've got the affinity, the, et cetera, et cetera. And we went to live with a consumer for a day, each of us in 26 houses. Now, do you, you've got children, right? Yes. Okay, so close your eyes for me for a second. Picture a particular photograph of your children that's somewhere in your house, and tell us which room that photograph is in.
0: Good question. I don't even know.
1: <laughs> just, just, just take a particular picture. All right. I'm going to
0: guess it's in my... Oh, actually, okay. I've got one in my office, my home office. All right.
1: Okay. So tell us who's in the picture. My youngest daughter. Okay. And how old is she in that photograph?
0: Uh, She's probably 10.
1: Okay. How old is she today? 12. Okay. So here's what we found in 26 households later. Every single time we asked, oh, how old are your kids? Because we saw the photograph. I said, oh, how old are your kids? Four or five? She said, no, love. They're 14 and 15. Now, you know that you have those photographs of your children in your house that are right. at least for anywhere from 2 to 30 years old. And for the listeners who don't, who are too young to have children today, they know that their parents have that dorky one of them living in the living room in first grade that they wish they got rid of years ago. So I asked the woman, I said, how old are your kids? She said, I thought they were four or five. She said, no, 14 or 15 you write it down, it's an individual clue. It means nothing until you get back together. It's an individual data point. But when 26 of us got back together and we all had the same clue, when I asked how old the children were in the photograph, they were anywhere from two years to 22 years older. In reality, we thought, hmm, Our intuition is telling us there's something here, our data's missed. Let's dig a little deeper. So when you ask parents and you know what they want for their children, we'll tell you we want our children to go to junior school, kindergarten, middle school, high school, college, graduate, get a job, be happy and healthy and successful. That's what we want for our kids, isn't it? That's what you want. No, you don't. You want them back in that little photo frame. When you walk in the door at night, you are still Superman or Wonder Woman. They come and grab your legs, you wrestle together, somebody farts, and everybody loses it. These are the best days of your life, and they're gone so quickly. And so we dug a bit, we thought there's something here. So we dug a bit deeper, and we found three bittersweet transitions that take place between a parent and a child. As you cross through them, you instantly want to step back i dare say with your youngest you haven't gone through any of them yet but i'm a dad i can use my intuition even though these are mums telling me this story i know exactly where i was for all three i know where i was the day my son asked me are you santa claus and in that split second imagination creativity batman superman gone but what hurt so much was what he had really said was what he had really said was i'm not your little boy anymore daddy i'm growing up and I know now girls you won't remember where you were that fateful day, dads you will. I know exactly where I was the day my daughter dropped my hand for the first time in public cause she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore. And I remember it was my left hand. It's a seminal moment between a father and a daughter. And I know where I was when we used to drive my daughter up to college and back and unpack a third of her room. And then last year we live in central Florida, she got her first job and moved to Manhattan. I've only been in a bedroom once, it's quiet, it's tidy. I started to burst out crying and I haven't been back in since. And so what we realized by spending time with mum and getting out of our data, what we realized, what was important, mum doesn't wake up in the morning worrying about whether or not Disney has new attractions this year. While mum wakes up every morning worried about how quickly her children are growing up and how she wants to make special memories for them, while they still believe, while they still hold my hand while they're still here. That's a three-way targeted communication campaign that drove sales, not intent to visit, 20% and turned a very product centric, we know better culture into a consumer centric culture where it is now mandatory for Disney executives to work one or two days a year in frontline cast members in the Disney theme parks and to spend a day a year in their consumers' houses. So we talked about how you might re-engineer the challenge uh, by asking what if and listing all the rules of your industry. We talked about how you might reinvent your relationship with the consumer simply by spending a day with them. And the last one is thinking about how you re-express the challenge that you're working with. As marketeers, we're all charged with ROI. We're all charged with driving revenue. But if we'd asked the question, instead of asking the question, how might we make more money? If we'd asked the question, how might we make more money in 2011, we'd have put the gate prices up at the Disney theme parks by 3%. People would have complained. They'd have still come. We'd have met our quarterly results. However, by reversing the question and saying, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain points? And then we use that what if tool that Walt had used all those years ago. We listed the rules of going to Disney. You have to buy a plane ticket. Got to rent a car. Got to stay in a hotel room. Got to watch the three o'clock parade. Got to meet Mickey Mouse. Got to go on Big Thunder Mountain. Got to stand in line. And we said, what if there were no lines? Didn't know how to do it. If you know how to do it, it's iteration, not innovation. We said, what if we eliminated the front desks in our hotels, the turnstiles at the front of the park where you wait 20 minutes to get in, to to the lines to pay for merchandise and food and beverage and to get on your favorite attractions? And we looked around the world, and sure enough, RFID technology had already existed for five years. We put in a band, called it Disney's Magic Band. If you're staying at a Walt Disney World Resort Hotel today, it arrives in your house before you leave. It is your room key. It is your theme park ticket. There is no turnstile at the front of our park. You swipe and go. It has your reservations for your favorite character meet and greets and your favorite rides each day. You swipe and go. If you want an item of merchandise, you touch it. It goes to your hotel room. If I want a hot dog with my pickles on the I'm going to Pinocchio's Village House for lunch today. I save it on my phone when I walk in, the restaurant clearly knows I'm here now. Touch table 47, the food comes fresh to me. Had we have asked How might we make more money? Would have put the gate price up, that 3%. But because we expressed the challenge and said, how might we solve our biggest consumer pain point? uh, The bottom line is the average guest now has about an hour and a half free time to two hours each day in the park they didn't have four or five years ago, which has resulted in record revenues because people spend money when they have spare time. It also results in, think of the 25 million visits a year through the gates of the parks wearing RFID technology. They are now essentially crowdsourcing the future design of every product and service Disney designs for its parts by simply touching and telling them what they like and what they don't like. So simply by you know, re-engineering the experience, by looking at the existing experience and breaking the rules of the industry, so simply by reinventing your relationship with your consumer, by, by actually going and meeting one for the first time for many people, and simply by re-expressing the challenge and not asking the same question every year, you can create great experiences and I, I you you will not only survive but you will thrive in what i call the experience economy because generation z are coming and they want experiences and that's why the easiest example is i go to new york six times a year there's a starbucks on every corner used to be now it's Dave's coffee shop, Sally's coffee shop. They're seeking individualized, personalized, customized experiences. And I think the challenge for a lot of big brands is we've been built on being consistent for a hundred years. This generation has just said, but I don't want you to be.
0: I want to ask some real specific questions here. Mm. Challenging the rules of the industry. Now, what kind of questions should we ask ourselves mm. when we're thinking about some businesses are that, that are listening to all of their business online, there's no physical brick and mortar kind of experience. Other businesses are shipping products, you know, to people's homes. Like, how do we actually? Some are selling information. How do we challenge the rules of the industry? Like, what are oh, we thinking okay. about?
1: So, today we market at our consumers. So we asked in 2010. You know, I, in fact, I had a lady who came along, a small entrepreneur, she franchisee, owner of a Planet Fitness, and she said, "Well, I said, how many people in your marketing department?" She said, two. I said, "Okay." And how many people come through your gym every month? And I think there are 3,000 members. And I said, okay, how much content do you produce today? And she said, one or two images a day. And I said, okay. And I said, and how many selfies? are these 3,000 people taking inside your gym every single day? Don't ask the consumer to do something they're not already doing. They're already taking themselves in their gym. And so, you know, we asked at Disneyland, oh God, over a decade ago, we said, what if we stop producing our marketing content? Let the consumer do it for us. Disneyland's Instagram account is completely curated consumer content. Disney doesn't produce any. And so for the smaller organizations, with the smaller marketing teams, we've always said we had to do it. Wait a minute, how many consumers have you got? And even if only a small percentage of them, your most passionate advocates, do this on your behalf, how much more reach will you have? But it's not about reach. It's about how much more credibility will you have? I can advertise at you and tell you to come to Walt Disney World on holiday with a two year old child. And you're going to say, no, I want to wait till Johnny's the right age. But if you see a photograph of your best friend with little Sarah, who's the same age as Johnny, enjoying the park, my work here is done.
0: So what I'm hearing you say is, hey, lean into consumer behavior and challenge whether the marketing you're doing needs to change with the times. Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say?
1: Yes. I mean, and look, at so I saw a little boy about six weeks ago in a museum in Brussels. And think about how museums market themselves today. And they're a very static experience. And he was probably three or four. And he went up to a painting, God bless him, and tried to swipe it. Well, (laughs) let me tell you. I felt very old very quickly. Because <laughs> he thought it was like
0: an iPad or something, huh?
1: Right. But so, so, okay. So you think about, will this boy want to go to a museum when he's 20? No. But you know what? Through augmented reality, which is the cheapest technology, again, for people to use, if Vincent Van Gogh could pop out of that painting and tell that little boy why he cut his ear off, how engaging would that be? How to turn a very static experience into a fully immersive one? You know, for, as you say, we don't all have huge capital budgets by any stretch of the imagination, but look at the success of Pokemon Go. So let's say you're a small owner of a small movie theater and you want to drive more 21 to 24 year olds to come and engage in your theater and come to your theater. You know what? You could, you could just create the game that allows them to do what they're doing anyway, gaming, To play the game in a local neighborhood, uh, to collect virtual points that they can um, put in for free popcorn and the best seat in the theater. And once they've seen the movie and gone through the whole experience, you could give them more virtual content back in the game that other people don't have. Because what do they want? They want social status in the game. So there's different ways of cutting it. Uh, Just the, the days of advertising at people are remarkably over, and it's it's about creating, I believe, the brands of the future that will be successful will be those brands that create great experiences, and even a bank can create a great experience if they choose to, uh, they haven't chosen to do it, and that's why at the moment they'll fail. Right. Physical retail, their ROI and their quarterly results are driven by revenue per square foot. Right. And that will see them gone because then you become a product. And if you're a product, I can buy you on Amazon and there is no reason to put my ass inside your store. Well, However, this is, this is if, why if,
0: if you look at most real estate stuff these days, it's it's restaurants that are taking over the former brick and mortar things because those are experiences, right? People walk well, in. Look at, want
1: to... Yeah. yeah look, at the, look at the success of craft breweries. Why are craft breweries more successful than the big guys? Because they're creating individualized, customized experiences.
0: I want to ask about the survey Rather than survey, have discussions. Now, obviously, not everyone is going to be able to be invited into the home of their consumer. But maybe they can get on the phone and talk to them or get on a video call with them. I mean, is that suggested? Your consumers,
1: yeah, but your consumers are living right next door to you. They're living They're everywhere. So here's the thing. I bring what I call a naive expert into every session I run. Actually, before I do this, do you have a paper and a pen anywhere near you? Yeah, I do. No? All right. So we were charged with coming up with a new retail, dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong Disneyland. I had in the room with me 12 white male American architects over 50. That's called groupthink. The naive expert, more often than not, could be a consumer. I invite them into every session I run. Why do I do that? I invite them in because they don't work for me and they don't work in my industry. Well, they are not there to solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation. However, because they don't work for you and don't work in your industry, they will ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask in front of your peers. They'll throw out the audacious idea ungoverned by your hierarchy, your politics, your turf and your approval process. They won't solve it for you. They will get you out of what I call your river of thinking and help you to think differently. I like that. And here's how it works. Um, I'm going to give you seven seconds. I'm going to name an object, and I'm going to ask you to draw it. Okay. Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. All right. I would like you, please, to draw a house. Seven seconds, six seconds, five seconds, four. Done. Okay, perfect. So let me ask you a few questions. Why did you draw the door in the middle on the ground floor? (laughs) Why did you draw two windows, and why are you so insecure you still drew bars over them? And what shape is the roof? It's a triangle. So I'm not saying I got that 100% right. You got the door right
0: and you missed okay, the chimney right? but you're close.
1: <laughs> all right. Okay. So here's the thing. I gave the Imagineers the same task. I asked them to draw a house. I gave them 7 seconds. They all drew what you drew because they all went into the river of thinking of what they of all their experience and all their expertise. The biggest barrier to innovation is our own experience. It gets in the way. And so they all drew the same thing. But I invited in as my naive expert a Chinese chef simply because she was Chinese, not American. She was female, not male. She was under 30, not over 50. She was a chef, not an architect. She drew dim sum architecture, which if you've never seen it before, and none of us had, was a round bamboo dish that your dim sum comes in with a little Chinese lady waving out of the window. And... We all laughed because we realized we stayed in our river of thinking. She gave us permission to get out of our river of thinking and think differently and consider audacious architecture. If any company in the world could consider audacious architecture, it would be the Walt Disney Company. On the way out the door, because it was called Dim Sum Architecture, somebody slapped a post-it note on it that said, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, the strategic brand position that guided everything, including the design of the resort in Shanghai, was distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Chinese. Um, you have small organizations. We always invite in the senior executives into the room. I won't go through the whole story. Yeah, well, go on. Then. So we were, this was a how might we make more money. We had all the executive vice presidents in the room and I invented, I brought in Mildred. She was 78 years of age. She works in our call center. Well, she speaks to our guests eight hours a day. We don't. So who do you think knows more about what the guest wants? And so we were just chatting. And I said, why do you do this? She said, well, my husband died a few years ago and this just gives gives me company and I enjoy the company. I said, well, what do you not like about it? She goes, oh, my boss. I said, why don't you like your boss? She goes, oh, he makes me get off the phone. I said, what do you mean he makes you get off the phone? She goes, well, if it doesn't look like they're going to book or convert, I have to get to the next call. I was like, oh, okay." I said, well, how many people do you book? She says, well, for every per- every family that calls, I book uh, every twenty calls, I book one family. I was like, is that good or bad? I do not know to think about it. She said, oh, well, I think I could book more if if I wasn't in this policy. And I said, but what nurse this policy? She says, oh, it's something called guest requests don't suggest. I said, well, what nurse that? She said, well, if the guest is online and they see an offer, if they don't suggest uh, if they don't um, suggest the offer first, I'm not allowed to, and I lose trust with them. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, so I went off to meet the head of strategic pricing. I said, tell me about this guest request don't suggest. And he said, well, "Well, it's worth X million dollars a year in incremental revenue. And I said, well, it doesn't sound right, though, does it? I said, but I can't run your dilution models for you. But Mildred here reckoned she could get four out of 20 and she was out of your policy. Could we take her policy, take her out of your policy for six weeks and see how she performs? Sure enough, six weeks later, Mildred was knocking out four out of 20 and Disney made a lot more money. So here's the point. Diversity, and that most people don't understand the power of diversity, they just they think it's political correctness and quotas and they just don't give it its due. Diversity is innovation. If somebody looks different to you, they think different to you, and if they think different to you, they can help you think differently. and it makes a much more innovative organization than a group of people who all look the same.
0: Awesome. You multiple times use the phrase "what if? I Mm. really love this phrase. I would love, and this was under the, you know, re expressing, right? Mm. But talk a little bit about why what if is such an important question and how we ought to maybe use it to help others around us maybe dream a little bigger.
1: I'll give you a big example and I'll give you a small example. Uh, I want to do both because it'll scale. Did you used to go to Blockbuster Video? Of course, yes. Did you have late fees? Probably. I don't remember. Cool. <laughs> Come on, Mike. Sure you did. We all have like <laughs> Yeah, probably. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the founder of Netflix listed all the rules going to Blockbuster. Step one, list the rules of your industry. I must be kind of rewind. I can rent three at a time. They never have the one I want on opening day. I have to drive to a physical store. I need a membership card. I must pay late fees. And he said, what if there was no physical store? That was an absurd suggestion in 2005. Mm -hmm. And he looked around the world, but guess what? YouTube had existed a long time before Netflix. And he said, well, wait a minute. YouTube at the time were only streaming amateur content. What if I only stream professional content? I'll do a deal with all the movie studios. Nobody would have to drive anywhere. Everybody would get the one they want opening day weekend. I open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'll cut the rental off at the end of 24 hours. Nobody pays a late fee. I'll take my idea to Blockbuster Video five times. They'll turn me down five times. I'll take him out of business in less than five years. Now, it's easy to look at Netflix and Disney and say, but I'm a small business. That's a cop out. Innovation isn't about money. It's about having a clear and simple idea. So, for ex- by the way, just so you know, it's how they founded Uber. Two guys walked into a bar. It was late at night. It was raining. They'd had too much to drink and couldn't get a cab because it was raining. And one of them said, what if every car was a cab? And that's how they founded the whole idea around Uber. But I'll give you a small example of a small company with small budgets. They only had 84 employees. It was in Nottingham in Great Britain in the 70s. And they used to make glasses that you and I would drink out of. And they noticed as the glasses were being wrapped and shipped, there was too much breakage and the production wasn't fast enough. So they simply went down to the shop floor and listed the rules. 26 employees, conveyor belt, cardboard boxes, 12 glasses to a box, glasses separated by corrugated cardboard, glasses wrapped in newspaper, employees reading newspaper. So there was their pain point. So somebody asked the relatively provocative question, what if we poke their eyes out? Well, guess what? That's against the law, and it's not very nice. <laughs> but, because he had, but because he had the courage to ask the provocative question, they got out of their river of thinking. The lady next to him immediately said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just hire blind people? So they did. Production went up over 20%, breakage went down over 70%, and the British government handed them a 50% salary subsidy for hiring people with disabilities. Wait, hold on a second.
0: So the issue was that they were reading the paper instead of doing their job? Got
1: it. Yeah. And so you've got, so there was a very provocative, what if, what if we poke their eyes out? Well, you can't poke their eyes out. But the provocative question gets you to the idea.
0: Huh. So. Give us some wisdom as far as like what kind of what if questions should we be asking, especially those of us that maybe, you know, don't think so innovative as you do. Like how, where do we start with these what if questions?
1: You start with the rules of your industry. So whatever business you're in, you. so let's say we're in the movie theater business. Okay, sure. I'm a consumer. Rule number one, I have to buy a ticket. Rule number two, I have to sit down. Rule number three, it's dark. Rule number four, I can't use my phone. Rule number five, I have to sit behind the man with a big head. Rule number six, I can't participate in the movie. What if I could participate in the movie? Ooh, wait a minute. What if we could do crowdsource theater, which would enable people to choose the villain, choose the costumes, choose that I'm making that up, right? Another one is, another rule is around I can't participate. What if I could participate? Well, wait a minute, Instagram, I've been able to buy my music off Instagram for the last Decade. Why on earth can't, and, and I can buy stuff straight out of people's Instagram scr- uh, um, posts today. Why on earth couldn't we create a movie where every single thing in that movie is for sale? The car, the blouse, the skirt, the desk. And as people see it, they can buy it straight off the screen, have it straight, straight to their home. Why not? Why hasn't somebody already done that? Instead of then working on our, you know, we've got to make revenue. By, by the way, if they did it right, the movie theaters today that make their money for you buying a ticket. But what if it was free? Well, how would I still generate revenue? Well, I do this idea where people could buy products off the screens and product placement, but done subtly and creatively within the movie. I'll make enough revenue out of the advertisers that I don't have to charge you to get in. Well, well I and I guess with the thing. movie
0: theater example, I mean, at least here in San Diego, you know, Fandango is a great example. Like somebody said, what if you could buy a seat from your phone without, like you do in a real theater, you know, mm-hmm. and now you have assigned seating, right? And then somebody else yep. said, well, what if we delivered food in? right to your seat right and now all of a sudden you have catering inside the movie theaters right and
1: yeah and making it an experience
0: what if the seats uh, went up
1: you know like. yeah. well cineopolis which is a mexican uh, yeah. movie theater chain if you ever get a chance to get get to one that's an experience i personally don't think movie theaters have long to live it's i know they said with each new technological advance they'd still survive right you know when tv came along when video came along with dvd when streaming they also but here's what's happened it's not about technology it's a culture shift when when you and I were kids, we went out to the park to play and kick a ball around together because we got shared. We got emotionally satisfied out of going together with our mates to a movie theater, to a restaurant, to a sports arena, to a concert. Right. My son, on the odd occasion I see him, it's in a 17-second sprint between his bedroom and opening the door for New Bridge Driver. So, but within his bedroom, he can play with all his mates. He doesn't have to go anywhere. And so it's a different world. And so, for example, the NBA is looking at, you know, they created some virtual teams last year because they're making a stake in the ground that virtual basketball revenue will exceed real basketball revenue. is Could virtual basketball actually be in the Olympic Games? Possibly. But there's a virtual Orlando Magic team that played against the virtual New York Knicks. They were drafted teenagers, paid lots of money. And when they went to play each other in Madison Square Gardens, they got a whole lot more fans showing up than show up to a regular game. Mm.
0: Duncan, let me ask you this question. There's plenty of people listening right now that are like, okay, I love asking what if questions, but my boss will never listen. How do you get the boss Ah, to listen to the what if questions?
1: That's that's a very fair challenge. We all have people. So here's what normally happens. So actually, we'll do a bit of role playing for a minute, if we may. Are you more familiar or would you prefer to talk about Harry Potter or Star Wars?
0: Oh, Star Wars for sure.
1: All right. Okay. So you and I, we've got $100,000 for tonight's party. I'm going to come at you with some ideas for tonight's party. I'd like you to start your response with what our boss always says. I'd like you to start with your response each time with the words, no, because, and give me a reason why we shouldn't be doing the idea. <laughs> okay, all right. Start. okay. So, San Diego. Ooh, social media marketing world. Ooh, I know. It's a big place. What if we turn the convention center into the Death Star?
0: No, we can't do that because someone's going to get hurt. <laughs>
1: Okay. All right. I tell you what then. What if we got the San Diego Philharmonic Orchestra and got them all dressed as stormtroopers, right? On stage, and then Darth Vader could be conductor with his lightsaber.
0: There's licensing fees. I don't think so.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So oh I tell you what, what about the Intergalactic Food and Wine Festival?
0: I don't think they drink wine outside of okay. the world.
1: <laughs> all right. So so okay, last one. Darth Vader smoothies? <laughs>
0: I don't think Darth can drink through his mask.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. So if I do this exercise with lots of people, and if you ask them at the end of the exercise, did the idea get bigger or smaller? Generally, you're going to hear the word smaller, right? Okay, now let's do it again. We'll stay on Star Wars. This time, you must respond with the first two words, you must say yes. And okay, and we'll build the idea together. Okay, that's it. All right. So convention center oh wait we could do one of those uh cosplay events where everybody could come dressed as the rebel alliance or a stormtrooper
0: yes and we could have battles against each other um and we could see which which you know whether it's the rebel alliance or whatever the other one is that wins
1: oh yes and then we could take everybody from san diego up to disneyland to see the new galaxy's hedgeland
0: yes and while we're there we could fly in george lucas to personally greet everyone
1: Okay. So bingo. Yeah, So two things. If you watch a group, when you do this exercise, you'll notice the energy in the level the energy level in the room goes up a hundred percent. Laughter goes up a hundred percent. People discover their hands. Then if you ask them, did the idea get bigger or smaller? They'll all say bigger. Right. And now I'm curious from this second exercise, when we finished building that idea with George Lucas, um, whose idea was it? Everyone who participated ours. right the moment you can transfer power of my idea to our idea is the moment you can accelerate its opportunity to get done hmm. we all sort your boss has more experience than you and more expertise than you and at 10 20 more years in the industry they know twenty thousand reasons why your new idea won't work and they will constantly shut it down and we as leaders must stop if the first two words out of our mouth are no because. People won't come back to us with a new idea. You have to remind yourself, even if you're a traditional reductionist and you've got a set budget and you're a small company, we are not green lighting this idea for execution today. We are simply greenhousing it together. And it, two little words from the w- world of improv if you just use yes and, By our own admission, it got bigger, not smaller. You can always take a big idea and value engineer it down. You can't take a small crap one and turn it into a big one. But far more importantly, inside big organizations with layers and approval levels and everything else, simply by saying yes and, you move it from mine to ours and you just give it a much better shot at actually getting done.
0: Awesome. Duncan, tell everybody uh, that's listening kind of what you do with your workshops and And specifically where they can reach out to you if they want to connect with you.
1: It's easy. I tried four models of innovation at Disney. We tried having uh, IDO do some work for us. They were very good. But when they left, we realized we hadn't changed our culture, because they weren't going to show us how they did what they did. We tried creating an innovation team, which sent a subliminal message to the rest of the organization. You're off the hook. You keep doing the business you way. You've always done it. We did an accelerator program, very good at bringing products and services to market much quicker, but still only touched 0.2% of our population. People say, why did you leave Disney? You were head of innovation, creativity. were there 30 years, are you mad?" No, I'm not mad. There's a massive gap in the market. Every single C-suite executive is standing up saying, we must innovate, we must take risks, we must disrupt. Um, I challenge you to be, uh, to be brave and think differently. And all of their employees are sitting there going, that's great. You're going to show me how? And nobody's doing the how. I thought, oh my God, I Just all I need to do is create an innovation toolkit that makes innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. Now, companies at first are a bit nervous about the word fun. You can't change a culture by talking about it. You have to give people a toolkit they want to use when you're not around. Therefore, make it easy, tangible, and fun. And the easiest way to find me is uh, uh, DuncanWardle.com, which is not the donut. (laughs) It's Scottish. D-U-N-C-A-N-W-A-R-D-L-E.com.
0: Duncan Wardle, thank you so much for coming on and talking about all this awesome stuff with us. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Cool. All right. Well, thanks very much for
0: the invitation. Hey, if you found any value in today's podcast episode, you can tag me on Instagram. I'm at Stelzner, or you can email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. If you want the show notes from today and you want to watch the video that I played for you earlier, com slash 395. If you're new to this podcast, hit that subscribe button so you never miss a future episode. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world.
1: The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner.
0: Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.